This was the moment that scores of heartbroken families had waited for. Guilty of mass murder and criminally sane. He's always regarded his cold-blooded killing spree as a political act, not the work of a madman. And when the trial was over, did you have a feeling of satisfaction? It felt like an exam that you had studied for for a long time. Outside, relatives digested the bittersweet culmination of a ten-week trial. You left the room and you felt that, yeah, you could answer the questions that came up in the exam. Fireworks in Norway on May 17th. It's Norway's National Day. The day begins with parades, and most people, including spectators, are in national costume. Long skirts and embroidered tops with white blouses for the women, and embroidered jackets and knickerbocker trousers for the men. May 17th in Norway is Constitution Day. Norwegians remember not a saint nor a revolution, but a legal document. And for Norwegians, this is appropriate. They see their country as safe, happy and peaceful. Or at least they did until two years ago. Excuse me, do you speak English? Yes. My name is Ron and I'm from Irish Radio. I'm asking people, do they remember where they were on 22nd of July 2011? Yes. At my house at Voss. Most Norwegians remember where they were on that day. Oh yes, of course. When the news came through. I uh, visited my son. I was in France when I heard, yes. A massive bomb blast has rocked the centre of the Norwegian capital, Oslo, killing at least three people and injuring dozens... The latest we're hearing from Utøya is that a man dressed as a policeman started shooting randomly and we have at a least line four or five... came up on my Facebook wall that I'll never forget and it said, please do not call the youths at Utøya. The gunmen are chasing and shooting them. My oldest child has been in that place. He was having a friend there, but he was in a Facebook mailing. Can you give a sign that you're alive? But no. He was dead. Police are questioning this man in connection with the Oslo bomb and the shootings on the island of Utøya. 32-year-old Anders Bering Breivik is reported to have right-wing Christian... One man remembers that he was on holidays when he heard about the bomb and the shootings on Utøya. My name is Osborne Rakleff. I'm a police superintendent. Uh, superintendent Rakleff was called back to Oslo immediately. His job was to advise on the interrogation of Breivik. ...team and sat behind the mirror. Rakleff is a superintendent in homicide who specialises in interrogation. That, that confession was enough evidence to get him convicted of the murder. He also lectures in the police college. When he's lecturing and giving talks, he mentions a particular murder case that changed his life. When he gave his it was the murder of a 15-year-old girl in 1995. The police arrested a suspect, her cousin, interviewed him and extracted a confession. And he was convicted. 
in the first trial. But the conviction was appealed and the defence brought in a British expert on false confessions. The world's leading expert on false confessions. He proved to the court that the Norwegian police had manipulated the situation to extract the confession. The suspect was released. The decision shook the Norwegian police and prompted Asbjorn Ratcliffe to go to his boss with a proposal. He wanted study leave to go to the University of Liverpool to study psychology as it applies to police interviews. At Liverpool, he researched a different form of interrogation called investigative interviewing. This is where the suspect is treated with respect and listened to. It doesn't fit in with the Hollywood model of detectives thumping the table and intimidating suspects who eventually crumble and confess, but according to Ratcliffe, it works. As a homicide detective, I believe I do have met people that do not have very much emotions for other human beings. Some people classify them as psychopaths, but even they enjoy being listened to. It's taken the authorities several hours to piece together what happened. A number of witnesses said they'd gathered at the island's main house to talk about the earlier bomb that had gone off in the centre of Oslo, killing seven when suddenly they heard shots. We were like gathered in the beginning and he came and started to shoot and we all thought it was a joke. He started to shooting. He came in and I said, come and be together. So they ran out and then he just shoot him. When you heard about Breivik himself, mm. how did you feel about him? Uh, hate, I think, yes. Really? Mm. Sad. He's not angry. No, I don't feel angry about sick people. <laughs> I just feel sorry for him in a way that he could be such a being, could grow up to be such a being. We recognize that uh, other countries would put on orange suits and uh, handcuffs, etc., etc. We try to avoid that. In some forces, Ratcliffe said, the police put nappies on suspects implying that they'll be so scared during the interrogation that they'll soil themselves. In other forces, the police are allowed to lie to a suspect, telling them, for example, that their friends have all confessed. When it comes to Britain, we also see that British police go much further in their address to the public because they want information. And I see quite often that the British police would bring in the mother of the child that are missing or, or killed. And it provokes emotions. The police involves the whole society in the pain that the ones that are left behind feels. I also see that judges and police officers after the trial will have very harsh characteristics of the suspect, that he's a coward, he's so-and-so-and-so, you know. We don't do that. And I realize that my British colleagues does this in order to get information to involve the society. But there is a downside to that, because uh, what it also does is that it creates negative emotions and anger and hatred. I've seen people suspected of homicide in England and they are brought to court you know, for hearing, for custody and, and people would stand outside and throw stones or fruit or whatever at the police vehicle this, this, this never happens in Norway it almost happened with Breivik Breivik had just killed 77 people and the Norwegian public were of course exercised about him but they were angry with the Norwegian police who had failed to stop him 
The police had no helicopter available to get an armed response unit to the area where the shooting was taking place and when they did get there, they had no boat to get across to the island. The country's police commissioner later apologised for their failings and resigned. So the pressure was on Superintendent Ratcliffe and his colleagues to get their part of the job right, the interrogation of Breivik. They got an early break in that Breivik decided to talk. The problem was what he said when he started to talk. When Breivik realised that he was not going to be executed on the spot or tortured or bullied in any way because he didn't know what to expect after his actions, when he realised that, and I think that took him about 10 minutes, then he would go directly towards our throat and threaten us, not the police, but the society. And he said that what you've seen here today is just firecrackers of what is coming. This is not the operation. Cell 2 and 3 will activate And we had to take him serious. I mean, our city was burning and uh, uh, there were dead children all over the place. So we had to take him serious. So that was what the investigation was all about. He created a ticking bomb scenario. Despite the ticking bomb fear that there were other terrorists out there waiting to attack, Ratcliffe and the Norwegian police decided to stick with the softly, softly, painstaking approach to dealing with Breivik. No banging on the table. The point is that our task as detectives, investigators, is to gather information. And in order to do that, we believe that we have to communicate. And banging the table, screaming, etc., does not help communication. Rather, on the contrary, it breaks down communication. Even with a man who respects force, and even with a man who is conservative and right-wing and believes in authority, it doesn't work to go in and be stronger and, and prove to him he's powerless. I've never met a human being that does not appreciate being listened to. The police took nine months to interview him and they were very gentle with him. Yes. They, what did you think of that? That's how we behave in Norway. <laughs> I like to think that. He killed 77 people, a lot of children. He showed no mercy. They should have done the same thing. They should have killed him? Yeah. And they say we need to get the information from him about Bullshit. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And the police got criticised because they took so long to do the interviews and they were quite gentle with him and trying to get his trust. What, did you think that was a good approach or do you think they should have just... I think it's good that we uh, maintain like human rights no matter who the person is. Although he did do horrible things, unthinkable things, uh, it is good that we still maintain a standard of human value. The interrogation team had three objectives in extracting as much information as possible from Breivik. They needed information for the case, obviously, and to find out if he had accomplices waiting to attack again. Secondly, they needed information to pass on to the relatives. One Scotland Yard detective who was involved in the investigation of the 7-7 bombings in London told Superintendent Ratcliffe that the value of answers to relatives could not be overemphasised. They often wanted to find out how their children had died. And the third objective, the team wanted to gather information for scientists and researchers. They were in the unusual position of having caught a mass killer alive and they wanted to learn as much about him and his motivation in the hope that it might help prevent future attacks. So in terms of your interviewers, 
that's obviously a huge decision for you to make, who you pick to actually go in. And, and because you've got these crucial moments as well in which you can get information from them. Yes. Who do you pick? How do you decide who to pick? In serious cases, we would pick colleagues that we know are good communicators. And one of the core skills is listening skills, that they are able to listen and that they are good listeners. He, in some of his writing, said he hated women. So did you avoid using women to do the interviews? No, I don't know if he ever wrote that he hated women. He has expressed uh, several times that he does not feel that women should be allowed to vote. In his view, they are too emotional. So did you avoid using women? Uh, No, no, we used our best interviewers, and uh, one of them is a woman. Did he not dismiss her? No, no, he didn't. She told him that my job is to listen to you. Uh, I have some questions. My job is to to find out why this happened, how this happened, and uh, I will listen to you. She communicated his rights. She told him how she was going to conduct the interview. He responded to that, and uh, he started talking, and she was listening. And then, uh, yeah, after 15 minutes or so, she had built a very good rapport with him. There is a potential flaw in this approach to interrogation. If you're going to win the trust of the suspect, you have to give a little of yourself. You have to tell the suspect something about your life if you want them to share information about theirs. Not an easy thing to do if you're sitting across from a mass killer. Yeah, I remember very well that in the old days, if I can say, you know, I'm 44 and I started, I guess, as a homicide detective in my late 20s, early 30s. And back in those times, I was taught, don't express any personal details, keep that private. And the argument was that they could gather information about you and come back, you know, and take your family, etc. But uh, we are in Norway. <laughs> I'm not saying that we don't have uh, criminal gangs, etc. But if you treat people with respect, professional respect, then my experience is that then they will respect you as well. But in the case of this interviewer, for example, if he said, are you in the Labour Party? Or are any of your family in the Labour Party? Or do you have children? Or do you have teenagers? Mm. How does she know what to say then in that kind of situation when he's asking for her to trust him? If, if we felt that the suspect were pulling out information and that there was some systematic approach behind it, then obviously we would stop and evaluate and analyze the situation. But detectives are public persons. We sign our reports, so we are open. And, I mean, if, if, if somebody really wanted and had the capability and the desire to take your family, then they would find out anyway. So did she share information about herself with him? Yes. Uh, not, not private information, but yeah, personal. I remember one interview where they had not seen each other for a few months. Then he would ask her, you know, how was the vacation and uh, how are you doing? He would also <laughs> at times ask the interviewer, it must be tough working with this case. It must be hard working with this case, uh, you know, for such a long period. Whether or not he did it out of real empathy or or not, I don't know, but uh, it may have been his upbringing, his way of being polite. If you look at pictures of the interview room Ratcliffe and his team used for Breivik, it doesn't look like the ones you see on TV. There are two armchairs and a small table between them. 
Breivik sat in one and the interviewing police officer in the other. Behind the chairs there are nicely patterned curtains on either side of a one-way mirror. Everything is explained to Breivik. Nothing is kept back. He's shown the mirror and told that on the other side are three or four people, police officers and experts, listening to the interview. The police officer in the room has a computer screen down in front of her. From this she can read suggested questions sent in from the team behind the mirror. Sometimes they're questions and other times they're just prompts telling her that she's covered that particular topic and to move on. The interviews took place once a week and lasted 8-10 to hours. Breivik would occasionally have a lawyer present but not always. He would drink from a water bottle every five minutes. He was determined to keep his body in the same condition he had when he went on his killing spree. 94 kilos. At 92 he would have been too weak and at 96 too slow. Behind the one-way mirror in the interview room, the experts would change, depending on the topic being covered in the interrogation. For example, if they were trying to find out where Breivik got the money to fund his operation, they'd bring in a financial expert to listen to his answers and suggest questions. Or, when he said that he built the Oslo bomb himself, they brought in a chemist to listen to his description of the bomb-building technique to see if he was telling the truth or if he had got the bomb from somewhere else. He was telling the truth. About a month into the interrogations, Ratcliffe and his team brought Breivik back to the island of Vutoya. Within memory-enhancing techniques, if you are given access to the physical environment that you were in when you encoded the information, then the chances are greater that you will remember details when you see the physical surroundings, because it brings back memories, which again then triggers memory. He walked around the island, showing them what he had done. He wore no handcuffs or manacles. Instead, he wore a harness with a rope attached, which was held by a police officer walking behind him. The idea was to make him feel as free as possible. He was told, however, that when they got to the cliffs on the island, the rope would be pulled tight to prevent him from jumping. There were microphones on the harness recording what Breivik had to say. His language was detached. He would describe how, having shot several people with his rifle, he would then put it over his shoulder in order to go around administering coup de grace with a handgun. He was, as he described it, securing the kills. And what was that like, following a man around? Uh, It was a special day, no question about it. It was a very special day. And the thing is, and I've heard many people from the Labour Party talk about this because it's such a beautiful place, the island. But now it has this history, which contradicts the beauty on the island. There are several images that emerge from that visit. Breivik walking around and a police officer with a clipboard walking around beside him. Occasionally Breivik would stop, lift his arms and put them in a position as if he was shooting an imaginary rifle. Yeah, and of course the details that he told us were so horrendous that we have not experienced anything like that and I hope uh, and believe that we would never experience it again. Mm. You talk about we, but yeah. I'm just wondering about you. Mm. How, did you how does your head manage it? Superintendent Ratcliffe doesn't mind talking about the Breivik interviews, but this is one question he hates to get from journalists. 
as a police officer, yes, it was special to work with the case, but it's my job. What I and my colleagues have experienced is absolutely nothing compared to those that were left behind. Sometimes in an interview like this, when reporters would ask, oh, how is it to be you know, a homicide detective or working on this case, etc., then it's easy to go along <laughs> with that kind of question. You know? and, and, and I see some colleagues upplay that. You know, like, but I would like to downplay it, and, and there is many reasons to do that. I mean, we have nurses, we have doctors, we have priests, we have many people that work at least as tough job as a detective. So I, I don't want to build up the stereotype Hollywood detective. Finally, Breivik went to trial. There was no doubt that he had committed the killings. He admitted to that. What was in question was his state of mind at the time. Breivik instructed his lawyers not to enter a plea of insanity. His thinking being that if he was found insane, that would undermine his political writings. The prosecutor even asked me directly, what do you think? Do you think that he is insane or not? And then I asked him that I certainly have a personal opinion on that matter. However, the police has enough power in the society. The question whether or not a person is insane or not is not to do the police to decide. We have enough power. Other uh, authorities will have to deal with that question. Anders Bering Breivik, the man responsible for Norway's worst act of violence since World War II, was jailed today for 21 years. Judges declared him sane and imposed the maximum sentence allowed by law. We are too nice in Norway. Really? Yes, I think so. When it comes to uh, punishment and uh, that sort of stuff. And when you heard that he had been convicted, was there a sense of relief? Or? Yes, absolutely, yes. It's the only good thing that could happen, that he was not killed, for instance. That would uh, left very many unanswered questions. Relief. Relief? Yes. Right. Hmm. And I hope he never gets out. He needs that row. <laughs> he, he needs to be killed. You think so? Yes, I do. We kept interviewing him for about nine months. Then I was asked to hold an internal brief at the police station. And then I went through our module of how we interview people. And then I came to the phase where I talk about mental preparations. And then (laughs) I knew that we were finished. And I kind of knew that I don't have to be professional in this case anymore. And I felt uh, that I had to cry. I mean, things like that happens automatically. And um, I was among friends, and uh, it was nice to cry. It was was good. It felt good. I think the Norwegian state can be proud about the process and the trial. I felt good about that. Why was that? Why do you think it was... Because it was the right way to do things. For some strange reason, most people uh, did not want him to get the death penalty. And do you? No, I don't. But I will personally pay somebody to take him out if uh, he got uh, out of prison again, because then the Norwegian justice system hasn't worked, and so... Somebody has to protect us again because that man is dangerous and he will always be dangerous.
It took the Norwegian police seven months to satisfy themselves that Breivik was lying about there being other terrorist cells in Norway ready to activate. In all, the police interviewed Breivik 31 times. They took 220 hours of testimony, every second of it on video. The interviews generated 1,271 pages and every single page was signed by Breivik and he was particular about the details on each page being correct. However, despite Superintendent Rakleff's trusting approach, Breivik complained during the trial that he was pressurised by the police about his beliefs on women, Muslims and others. The judge did not uphold his complaint. I hope that history will show that we did the right thing, namely to apply the rules that we are agreed upon, that the whole world has agreed upon, namely the basic human rights. They apply in every situation. There is no exceptions. There is no excuse for torture. Because if we torture, then we degrade ourselves, we leave our values, and democracy has lost So in that sense, I felt that we succeeded. Whether or not history concludes the same, it's too premature for me to say. And what he did, did that say anything about Norway or was it just one person? It's just one person, I hope, yes. But he have friends that agree with him in Russia, especially in Germany, yes. And some in England and maybe someone in Ireland too. I would like to end with an expression, a statement of regret. In court, after the verdict was announced, Breivik started to speak. He was saying sorry to fellow nationalists around Europe. The judge suddenly cut off his microphone before the end of his sentence could be heard on TV. But those sitting near him heard. He was saying sorry to his fellow nationalists for not killing more people.